0: Point Church sermons. This sermon was preached by Pastor Scott Kappelman during a Sunday worship service. We hope you enjoy and share the message. Today there are three places that I want you to go to in your Bible. One of those is going to be Exodus chapter 3. That'll be later in the sermon. Then we're also going to be in uh, not Luke, John chapter 11 and then also Acts chapter 2. So those are the three locations that we're going to study from today. We started Last Sunday, a new series called Tomorrow's Headlines Today. And what I wanted to do with this uh, particular series is move us into the Easter season. And last week, the primary question that we were struggling through is Have we ever questioned God's timing? And I think all of us have. There are just seasons of life where God is at work, but we can't understand the timing of how He's working things out. And so last week we went to Matthew chapter 16, and we found a verse that kind of reminded us of a headline that could have been written in the first century, and the headline of the first century could have been, future king predicts his own death. And our point was, as we studied this verse from Matthew chapter 16, is that Jesus predicted in advance His death, burial, and resurrection. And as he began to share that with his disciples, he had a plan. There was a timing to that. He didn't just blurt that out. Once they decided to follow him, that was not the first conversation they had when he said, come follow me. He didn't immediately say, hey, guys, as you follow me, let me let you know that at some point I'm going to be crucified and buried and resurrected on the third day. There was a timing element, and so it took all the way from from Matthew chapter 4 where He called the disciples until Matthew chapter 16. They had walked with Him for about two and a half years before Jesus knew it was the right time to introduce that concept because they had come to a place of complete belief and trust in Jesus at that point. And because they completely trusted Him and they confessed He was the Messiah, the Son of God, He knew at that point it was the right time. And so He said, look guys, with about a half year left in this ministry, I want you to know that the point of the ministry is to go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, they're going to crucify me, they're going to bury me, and then I will be resurrected on the third day. And he began to talk about it, but it was two and a half years in. So God's timing is purposeful, and it's always correct because He's really waiting on us sometimes to put our full trust in Him before He opens the door to give us the full revelation of what He's doing. So His timing, we can trust it, And we can trust it based on the fact that Jesus predicted His death in advance as well as His resurrection. Well, today I want to move to a second question that I think sometimes plagues us, even as believers. Now, if you're not a believer today, this may not be a question you're even considering. But do you ever question God's plan? Do you ever question God's plan? Now, that's a little bit different from do you ever question God's timing. But do you ever question God's plan? So we've got some college students back today. It's good to see some of them and some of them went on the mission trip. I was not expecting to see them today necessarily. I knew Andre was going to play. uh, So I expected to see him. But a lot of our other students that went on the mission trip to Utah, I didn't know if they would be here because they looked really tired. If you remember from last Sunday when I got up to do the good news, I had a photograph of our team as they were leaving the office. And they were all smiles. They were excited about the trip that was in front of them. Well, when I picked them up at the airport on Thursday in Birmingham, I saw 16 individuals who came out of the airport to the loading area, and they looked like this. They were just, they were zonked. They were super tired. So I didn't know if I'd see any of our team members today. A few of them are here. But I want to talk about college students in particular because we're in now March, and in just a couple of months, we've got a nice group of seniors who are going to graduate, and I feel certain in just having some conversations with a few of them, as well as eavesdropping on a few of their other conversations, some of them have questions about God's plan for their lives, because they're coming to the end of their college career, some of them have jobs, but it's not in places and locations that they anticipated going. But there are a few of them who are going to be graduating who do not yet have jobs. And they're beginning to question not only God's timing, but God's plan. I came to Mississippi State. I really sensed this was where I was supposed to be. And now I'm at the end of the journey, and I'm not real sure what's next. And so there's this question about the plan of God. Some of you as adults, it's not just a college student issue, Some of us as adults have questions about the plan of God. And that's okay. That's why I wanted to talk about this today. It is a part of the journey of faith that Jesus has asked us to walk. I think the early disciples, after Jesus had ascended back to the Father, they had a lot of questions about the plan of God. Now, we have this romanticized view of the disciples in the book of Acts. And I don't think we should have the romanticized view, but I think we do. I think in our minds as believers in 2023, we look back on the disciples of the first century, especially in the book of Acts, and we think they had everything put together in a neat package. But could you just transport yourself back in your mind to the first century and consider... That on the Friday that Jesus was crucified, if you had been a disciple of Jesus, you would have been stunned that he had been crucified at 9 a.m. that morning. Because we know that when he was arrested during the middle of the night, most of the disciples took off fleeing because they didn't know what was happening next. It was Simon Peter and most likely John, one of Jesus' disciples, that hung around close by and watched the trials of the night unfold. And there were four different trials that Jesus went through. And they were the ones who were close enough to maybe see the trials, but the other ten, they're gone. They're not there. And then He's crucified and He's buried on that Friday afternoon before sundown. And then for a couple of days, they're very confused about, is this it? Like, is he gone forever? Because he said he was going to be crucified and buried, but he kept talking about a resurrection, but he hadn't been resurrected yet. And so there are a couple of days, Friday night and all day Saturday and into the early morning hours of Sunday, where they're very confused about whether Jesus is going to fulfill the prediction that we talked about last week. And then the good news comes on Easter Sunday morning, which we'll talk about in a few weeks where he is resurrected from the grave. And it's very exciting to them as they begin to discover he has come back. He did fulfill the prediction that he made about his death, burial, and resurrection. But then he's in and out of their lives. And the reason we know this is he appears to most of the disciples on Resurrection Sunday, but Thomas is not there. And we have this gap there between when Jesus made his first appearance and he makes his second appearance. So he disappears from their sight and they're very confused again. Thomas comes in, they say, we've seen Jesus. And he says, well, where is he? And they say, well, he's gone. And so Thomas says, well, if you don't let me see his his hands and his feet, I'm not going to believe this. So there's incredible confusion about this. Then Thomas is there with them at a later time. Jesus makes another appearance And he hangs around for 40 days, but there's no indication that during that 40 days he stays with them continually. He's coming and going and coming and going. I think every time he's with them, I feel certain they're asking a lot of questions and he's trying to fill in the gaps of the pieces of information that they're missing. But after 40 days, he's resurrected or he's ascended back to heaven and he's left them with this charge to wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, we read Pentecost and think, man, those disciples had it all together. But I think they spent a lot of that time between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit in hiding in deep confusion about the plan of God. And one of the things that was very confusing to them about the plan of God is how could God use ruthless, no good people to nail Jesus to a cross. How could that fit in the plan of God? That brings me to Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible this morning, in Acts chapter 2, we've, we've got this one verse. I really want to focus on just a part of the verse to let you kind of get a glimpse of what I think the disciples were contemplating during this time. <laughs> But in Acts chapter 2 look at verse 23 just look at the second part of verse 23 you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him I think those early disciples were really bumfuzzled is the word I'll use bumfuzzled about the plan of God and how God could use these lawless people to nail Him to a cross. It was one of those things they were contemplating. Now, who were those lawless people? We actually find them in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 11. So if you'll go from Acts, chapter 2, and you'll run back with me to John's Gospel. Let's go to John's, John's Gospel, chapter 11. And I want to show you the lawless people who nailed Jesus to a cross and how this plan was hatched, if you will. It says in verse 47, so the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. So let's, let's talk about this Sanhedrin. We need to know who the Sanhedrin are and what they were all about. The best way for me to describe it is the Sanhedrin of the first century for the Jewish nation was their Supreme Court. It was their Supreme Court. And they met just inside the temple complex. When you came into Herod's temple, if you were to hang a left, there was a, a A little courtyard area, but over to the left, there beyond the courtyard was a room, of. it was called the Room of the Hewn Stone. And it was in that room, there was a a place designated for the Sanhedrin to meet. There were 71 members. Some of them were Sadducees, some of them were Pharisees. And you had a high priest who presided over the group. And so you had 35 members on each side with a high priest in the middle. The high priest sat in the middle. This is probably so that the group could always be able to cast a vote and not get a split decision 35 to 35. When you've got 71, you've got 35 on one side and 35 on the other side, and you've got a high priest. If there's a tie 35 to 35 and the high priest throws the final vote, then you've got some way to make a decision because it's going to be 36 to 35 at that point. So when you came into the temple complex, everyone in the first century would have known over to the left is this Hewn stone room where the Sanhedrin meets, and that's where official judgments of the Israelites were made because the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the ruling people over Israel. And so, this is what we find in chapter 40, uh, chapter 11, verse 47. So, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened. The Sanhedrin. Well, why are they convening it? It's because news has come back to them that this man Lazarus, that we studied last week, has been raised from the dead. And who's at the center of the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Jesus. He's the one who has called Lazarus from the dead. And they've got to now decide what are we going to do with this man named Jesus? What are we going to do with him? Now, I've learned something this week. We've got a group of ladies in our church on Tuesday mornings and they do a women's Bible study and they are studying Arnold Frudenbaum's book on the Messiah. It's called Yeshua. Yeshua. And uh, the ladies were so kind a few weeks ago because they've been studying this for several weeks. They bought me a copy. They thought I needed a copy. I think they realized I was a little bit ignorant in my understanding of the New Testament. So they bought me a copy and I've been reading through it. I'm 90 pages in. They're on a page, I think 105 in their next meeting. I'm trying to catch them. I'm hopefully to pass them before they meet. They're not meeting this Tuesday, so I've got a week to get caught up and pass them. And then when I go back, I say, I'm on page 200. And y'all are on page 115. And so I can kind of brag a little bit. But nonetheless, I've been reading this book. And one of the things that Frudenbaum brings out, he's a Messianic Jew. That means he grew up as a Jew, but he's become a follower of the Messiah, Jesus. And one of the things he's reminded us of in the book is that this Sanhedrin had a two-part process when they decided someone might be in conflict with them. The first one, first part of the process is they would go send out a delegation to just observe the person that they were concerned about. If you go back and read the Gospel accounts, you'll find that early in Jesus' ministry, it was not uncommon as He performed miracles, And as he was doing certain teachings, there would be a group of Pharisees or Sadducees or Jewish religious leaders in the background, not saying anything, but Jesus would know they were there because he would reference them. They first did this to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was down at the Jordan River, they got concerned about John the Baptist and his popularity and people going to be baptized by him. And so what did the Sanhedrin do? They sent a delegation down to the Jordan River to just stand and observe What is this guy doing? And that's when John the Baptist says he's baptizing. He looks up and sees them doing their observation part, one of their little trial that they're going to unfold. And he says, what? You brood of vipers, who called you down here? Because they weren't saying anything. They're just standing on the shore going, what's he doing? And so they did the same thing with Jesus initially. They sent little groups from the Sanhedrin to observe Jesus and try to find out if he's doing something we don't agree with. But once they had enough evidence that the person they were observing was doing something that was in violation of Jewish law or in violation of their oral traditions, then they would move into phase two. Let's decide what we're going to do. What action do we need to take? Well, that's where they are with Jesus. They've been observing Him, but now the Word has come back. He's raised somebody from the dead... And the crowds are really mesmerized by this guy, Jesus, raising people from the dead. We've got to do something. And that's the whole point of verse 47. It says, so the chief priests and Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. Why? Because they're through observing. It's now time for a decision. And that brings us down to verse uh, 51 and 52 and 53. And, and, And they go into this decision. It's time to kill him. Notice verse 51. He did not say this of his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, catch this, they plotted to kill him. They've moved from part one observation to now plot two. Let's take him out. Let's kill him. Verse 52. And that's led me to ask this week, why why did the Sanhedrin... Why do they want to kill Jesus? Why do they want to kill Jesus? Let me give you some quick reasons this morning. N- number one, they wanted to kill Jesus because of His claims. Jesus' claims. Now remember when we were together last week, we were in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the close friends of Jesus. Lazarus gets sick. Mary, Martha, and The message to Jesus, we need you to come because our brother is sick and it may lead to death. We need you to get here as quick as you can. So the messengers go and report this to Jesus. Jesus is in hiding. He's in a place called Ephraim. And the reason he's there, the last time he was in Jerusalem, the people tried to stone him. So he left town. He's kind of in hiding. And the word comes, you need to come down to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. Your friend Lazarus is at the point of death. We need you to come quickly. And he doesn't go for a few days. And then he says, I think, guys, it's time for us to go. And so he begins to make the journey. And the disciples are a little reluctant in chapter 10 to go with him in the early part of chapter 11, because they know the last time they went toward Jerusalem, there was trouble. And they even have a discussion. Jesus, should we really do this? And finally, one of the disciples said, well, if he's going to go, we might as well all go and die with him. And they decide to follow Jesus down Well. On the way, while they're getting there, Lazarus dies, and he's been in the tomb for four days when they arrive. Mary and Martha both come out and have a conversation with Jesus, but we recorded last week what Martha said when she talked to Jesus as he arrived and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. I want to go back to that, John chapter 11, verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Verse 24, in chapter 11, Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says this, Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but man, the first century, that meant a lot. Because when he put the little phrase at the front, I am. Remember the Sanhedrin's got a group observing everything Jesus is doing. When they heard him say, I am, the light bulbs went off. And the delegation watching Jesus heard Him say, I am God. And that was offensive. Now why would they connect Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life with Jesus saying, I am God. Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Remember, I asked you to be in Exodus chapter 3 as one of our stops today. And in Exodus chapter 3, when God was getting Moses' attention preparing to send him back to the land of Egypt to deliver his people. At one point, Moses has a question for God. If I go back and do what you've asked me to do, go back to Egypt and try to deliver the people out of Egyptian slavery, what if the people themselves ask me, who is this God that has sent you to us? What's his name? If you'll join with me in verse... 13 of chapter 3 in Exodus. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And then God himself gives the answer that he wants to be used by Moses in Egypt. And this is what he says. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. God says, I am, I am. So when you fast forward from this scene in in Exodus chapter 3 to what we find Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. That group of Sanhedrin who are standing back and observing Jesus, it all connects in their minds and they go, oh, he's making a claim to be God in the flesh. Well, Jesus had been doing this. They've been hearing this regularly from Jesus. Remember, there's seven I am statements. I've got them for you on the screen. And here they are, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the gate, I am the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life where we are today. He's later going to say in his ministry, I'm the way, the truth and the life and I am the true vine in chapter 15 of John's gospel. Seven times in John's gospel, John records Jesus saying, I am. It is unmistakable the claim that Jesus was making. He was putting himself in equality with God because he was God in the flesh And when he used these statements, the Sanhedrin heard it, and boom, he needs to be killed. Because he's claiming to be God. Because he was God. The second reason they want to kill him is because of Lazarus' resurrection. The second reason is Lazarus' resurrection While you're in John's Gospel, chapter 11, I want to show you a verse that's kind of significant. It's going to set the stage for what we'll read in just a moment. If you'll go to chapter 11, verse 19. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So when Lazarus died, in the delay between Jesus getting the news and arriving in Bethany, A large delegation of people began to show up in Bethany. Remember, Jerusalem and Bethany are two miles from each other, so it was a quick walk. It was probably about an hour's walk. As the news drifted into Jerusalem, people who knew Mary and Martha, and they heard that Lazarus said... They began to come out to Bethany, and a large crowd comes from Jerusalem to comfort them. That makes sense. When you know someone, and that person has a loved one that dies especially if it's a sibling or a parent or a spouse, what do many of us do? We get in our cars, we drive over to the person's house, we visit with them, we try to bring words of comfort, we let them know we're going to pray for them, we may bring them a platter of food to kind of help them get through that season where they don't feel like cooking for themselves. The same thing was happening in the first century. People are people in every epoch of time. And so a group gathers... Then while that group is gathered, Jesus shows up and He calls forth Lazarus from the grave when He comes out and He's resurrected. Many, it says, in the crowd believed on Jesus because of that. Look in chapter 11. Chapter 11. Would you look at verse 45? Therefore... That crowd that gathered in verse 19, therefore, in verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He, the pronoun stands for Jesus, what Jesus did, believed in Him. Again, Jesus' popularity and the crowd, they're putting their full trust in Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, who has now claimed to be God. But the third reason they wanted to kill Jesus is because of Israel's politics. Israel's politics. You you know, we think in the day in which we live, 2023, that politics are corrupt for the first time in the history of the world. That is just not true. The corruption of politics has been going on all of human history. And we get a beautiful example of the corruption of politics. In chapter 11. Because you would think that Jesus claiming to be God. And Lazarus' resurrection would be enough. But the real reason that these religious leaders. Remember they're religious leaders. And they're meeting in the temple complex. Having their supreme court meetings right there inside the doors of the complex. Their real reason was they were fearful of losing their national position with Rome. Now let's go back and look at what it says. Look in verse 46. We just left verse 45. Now we go to verse 46. But some of them, that means some of the people in Bethany who saw Lazarus raised, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They're observers. They're out there checking out Jesus. And then it says in verse 47, where we started a moment ago, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. Now it's time to move from observation to decision. What are we going to do about this guy? And they were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? And notice verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, But the last phrase is the key. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Politics. Politics. Now remember, the Israelites are an occupied nation. Rome is the dominant world power. They have sent troops down and leadership down to overcome the Israelite people. And so essentially the Israelites live under the suppression of the Roman Empire. But the one thing that made the Jews unique among all the nations in the Roman Empire is that the Romans gave the Jews the right to continue to worship Yahweh. That's what distinguished them. Everywhere else that Rome went, everywhere else that Rome went, they required those nations to say, Caesar is Lord. Well, in Israel, Yahweh was Lord. So the Israelites had worked out some kind of a political agreement behind the scenes to maintain their ability not to say Caesar is Lord, but Yahweh is Lord. And if Jesus kept stirring up the masses, it was going to create problems for Rome, which might necessitate that they would lose their ability to keep worshiping the God of the Old Testament. And because of political power struggles going on, they said we must kill Jesus to save Israel's political skin. So why did they want to kill Jesus? Jesus' claims to be God. Lazarus' resurrection, which was causing people to believe in Jesus. And Israel's politics. And the end result was what they said in verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Now, can I show you one more thing before we leave John chapter 11? Remember, they've got 71 members in this Sanhedrin, 35 on each side, the high priest sitting in the middle. The high priest gives us the news story of the first century. Because this whole series is built on tomorrow's headlines today. And the headline that came out of this meeting of the Sanhedrin is, One Man's Death Creates National Advantage. One Man's Death Creates National Advantage. That would be the headline. If there was a reporter sitting in the Sanhedrin meeting when they met and decided to kill Jesus, that reporter would have gone out and the next day in the paper would have read one man's death creates national advantage. Why would I say that? Look in verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he's the guy sitting on the lectern with 35 men on each side. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. It it was Caiaphas, the high priest, who said, "Let's, let's kill one man to save the nation. And that's why I say that reporter would have gone out and said, one One man's death creates a national advantage. We all get saved if Jesus can just die. And that's what the Sanhedrin has decided. But can I now bring us back, because we started with the plan of God and we just kind of lost track of it, but we haven't. Can I show you that although those three reasons I gave you are legitimate, Jesus' claims, Lazarus' resurrection and Israel's politics. All of those are legitimate reasons why they decided in verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. But let's let's not lose verse 51. He did not say this, Caiaphas, on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He prophesied. That's interesting. There's this pattern in Scripture that every time God's people were put in a position where someone was thinking they're going to eliminate them, somehow God, in His plan, doesn't allow it to happen. He, He does just the reverse. It's kind of like Balaam in the Old Testament. There was a story of Balaam. He was hired by a neighboring Israelite nation to curse Israel because that neighboring nation was fearful of Israel. So they hired Balaam, this kind of false prophet, to come and curse Israel and Balaam initially knew God didn't want him to do it, but then the money got good enough and he said, well, maybe I could go and do whatever you've asked. And so when Balaam went and he looked over the nation of Israel from a hilltop, when he opened his mouth, instead of a curse, a blessing came out. And so the guy who was paying him said, look, that's not what I hired you to do. Let's go look at them from another vantage point. So they go to another high hill and look over the nation of Israel and he's supposed to curse them and he opens his mouth and boom, out comes this beautiful blessing over Israel. Four different times, Balaam Opened his mouth to curse Israel and again, God just used it as a blessing. And so in the same way, Caiaphas in the first century. In the Sanhedrin says, let's let one man die. Because it's going to create a national advantage. We're going to save our nation. What he didn't realize is that one man's death was not only going to save the nation of Israel, not politically, but spiritually. He was going to be the one that would die and create your advantage and mine. Because had he not died on that cross, you and I would be living in sin under the wrath of God. But because of that one man's death, he created a pathway for you and for me to know our Heavenly Father and to be forgiven of our sins. And by putting our faith in him, we have the opportunity to experience reconciliation, forgiveness, And eternal life. And what Caiaphas meant as a curse on Jesus. Becomes the greatest blessing in the plan of God. Because one man's death did create an advantage. But it was for all of us. And Caiaphas didn't even realize what he was saying. But God did. Can we go back to Acts chapter 2 now and. Finish this piece of the puzzle that you need to see. I think those disciples did struggle between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, but as they kept letting the Holy Spirit teach them, and they began to put all the pieces together, we only read half of verse 23 when we should have read the whole thing. Because listen to what it says. Though He, that means Jesus, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail Him to a cross and kill Him. God knew all along what He was doing. He was going to bring about our salvation through Jesus' death. He was going to use lawless people like the Sanhedrin to bring it about and the Roman soldiers and Pilate. But when you back away from the immediacy of the first century, you find that when you back up, God's plans being worked out. It was a plan that He put in place before time ever began and it included the death of Jesus for you and for me. And the disciples, once the Spirit came on them, they began to put these pieces together and they realized, yes, there were lawless men who killed Jesus for a lot of reasons that don't make a lot of sense. But in the plan of God, that was exactly what He needed to happen for you and for me. To have a chance to be reconciled to Him for all eternity through His Son's death, burial, and resurrection. So the plan of God The plan of God is always trustworthy. As we move into the invitation this morning, there may be somebody here who's struggling with the plan of God. It doesn't make sense to you. I would suggest, based on what I've just read and studied in these places that we've looked at today, if God's plan included Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our most important eternal problem, that was sin, If he had a plan for our most important problem, then surely he's got a plan for today's earthly life. You can trust God's plan because of Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for assembling this group of people in this room. And I just have to assume that there could be at least one person sitting in the room today who has had a struggle over the last few weeks, maybe the last few months, with trying to figure out the plan that you're unfolding for his life or her life. I hope that this gentle reminder from Scripture that your plan from before time included Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for us is an encouragement that you still have a plan for us while we live on this earth. For that person who's been walking through that struggle, I hope today we've brought hope from your word. And I hope we've reminded that person sitting here today that Jesus is not just his Savior or her Savior, but he is also. The one with the plan for his life and her life. And we can fully trust walking with Jesus is going to get us to the destination that you have for us. So use this invitation to restore our trust in your plan. And we pray this in Jesus' name.